I want to welcome all of the new listeners to the Peter Schiff Show podcast who are now listening to me because they heard me for the first time on the Joe Rogan experience yesterday. Oh, and also before I forget, I want to thank my newest and only sponsor of the Peter Schiff Show podcast, ExpressVPN. And I want to Thank ExpressVPN for supporting the Peter Schiff Show podcast. And you probably don't think much about internet privacy on your home network, but ExpressVPN will secure your privacy and protect your information. Visit expressvpn.com forward slash gold, and you can get three months free with a one-year subscription. Um, And I want to, you know, spend uh, most of this podcast, or probably all this podcast, really going over... Uh, the uh, experience I had with Joe Rogan on the podcast. There really hasn't been a lot of market action over the last few days, so I really don't need to talk much about the stock market, although there may be some fireworks tomorrow. We'll see. After the close today, uh, Netflix came out, reported earnings. It looks like they had better than expected earnings. And of course, everybody expected good earnings. Netflix is one of the favorite go-to COVID stocks because everybody is staying at home. They're not going to work. They're not going to the movies. So they're staying home and they're watching Netflix. So it's been one of the darlings uh, of the COVID trades. Of course, if people were really thinking about the implications of COVID and all the money that we're printing because we think that's the cure for COVID, they really would be buying gold and gold stocks. They wouldn't be buying stocks like Netflix. But anyway, though Netflix reported better than expected earnings, they warned about trouble ahead. And I'm looking at the stock now trading down about 10% uh, in after hours. And that is dragging down the futures. I'm looking at Dow index futures down about 200 points. That's about uh, 0.7, a little over 0.7%. NASDAQ futures, because Netflix is in the NASDAQ, uh, down even more, down about 150 points. So now you're getting closer to 1.5%. So we'll see. We could have a, a bigger down day tomorrow. And if I end up doing a podcast tomorrow, one reason I might do it is if we do have uh, a particularly big day down in the stock market, but who knows? But of course, it is early. The futures only just started trading. It's a long time before tomorrow's open. And, you know, with the type of volatility we have in this market and all the money printing and all the the hope and speculation, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the futures completely reversed and we could be, you know, up uh, a couple hundred Dow points or one and a half percent on the NASDAQ. They may completely ignore the earnings warning out of Netflix and buy the stock anyway. So who knows? Anything could happen. But if something big happens, I will definitely be talking about it. But today, uh, I kind of want to really focus more on the Rogan podcast, a couple of points uh, that I think I should clarify. And, you know, I did get a lot of uh, feedback. Not all of it was negative, uh, but I got some positive feedback. But I also got some questions. And some of them, you know, I tried to answer when they were coming in on my social media accounts. Of course, I can't answer them all. But there's some that I want to answer on today's podcast, because I think a lot of people uh, would benefit from hearing the answers. 
And there's also a couple of points that I I think I should have made on the podcast that I'm just going to make now for the benefit of the people who heard the podcast and now, you know, they're listening to this one. But I want to start out by, you know, addressing the elephant in the living room. And that was my rather annoying tendency to constantly not only interrupt Joe Rogan, but to talk over him, to actually talk while he was talking. And I noticed, you know, the comments on the podcast itself. And I'm getting a lot of thumbs down on that podcast. I mean, more than I normally get, right? I get a lot more thumbs down uh, when I do Joe Rogan. Again, this was the fourth time I did it. A lot of people don't think I'm going to come back because of this problem. Believe me, I've already discussed it with Joe. Joe's not upset at me. And there will be a fifth appearance at some point on the Joe Rogan experience. Just don't know when. It'll most likely be in person. Uh, and that's the way I prefer to do it. But, you know, we're living in this COVID reality right now, and I'll get into all that. Uh, but uh, the, the, the problem was all that interruption. And, and first of all, you know, I hope that a lot of people that might otherwise have benefited from what I had to say didn't get so turned off uh, during the first, uh, you know, 15, 20 minutes that they actually didn't listen to the entirety of the podcast. But as I was saying, I normally get a lot of thumbs down because I'm a very polarizing guy. You know, I say a lot of things that are going to piss off, uh, you know, people that have a different political uh, perspective, more so than most of his uh, guests. So I normally get a lot of thumbs down, but I get way more thumbs up than I get thumbs down. Uh, But the ratio, I think, on this last one is more like two to one or a little bit more, whereas I'm normally maybe seven to one thumbs up uh, this time it's, you know, it's more evenly split. So a lot of people uh, didn't like uh, the video. And I don't blame a lot of people for not liking it, given the fact that I was interrupting so much. But I just want to explain why that happened, uh, because I wasn't trying to be rude. And a lot of people have figured this out, but a lot of people don't seem to get it. And they just think, well, you know, he's a conservative. He's just this rich guy that doesn't give a shit about anybody. And that's obvious because he he didn't care about Joe. Well, first of all, Joe's pretty rich too himself now that you know now that he's got this Spotify deal. So I'm not the only one that that has money, right? Joe Joe's got some money too. Uh, but it's not about being rude and it's not about people who are rich or rude. I mean, maybe people have a perception. Look, there are rude people who are rich and there are rude people who are poor, right? I mean, you could be rude regardless of your, you know, your status as far as uh, you know, wealth or or or, or income. But what happened is first of all, I was going to be in studio in LA. That was the initial plan. I was going to Freedom Fest in Las Vegas in July. And the whole setup on the Joe Rogan podcast was worked around my trip to Vegas. I was going to be there anyway. And I reached out to Joe because he had mentioned that, you know, he wanted to get me on the podcast. I heard it on one of his other podcasts. My name came up and I I contacted Joe. Hey, great. I'd love to come on. I'm going to be out in Vegas in July. Here are my dates. Can we work something out like while I'm there? And I was just going to fly, you know, the same day from Vegas right to an airport right near him uh, and do the podcast and go back and finish up the conference that I was going to be in in Vegas. Well, anyway, the Vegas conference got canceled because COVID broke out in Vegas and then they clamped down again and they, they shut down the events. And so it got canceled. And so then I contacted Joe and said, you know, I don't have to be in Vegas anymore. So my schedule is open. 
why don't we just wait a few weeks? You know, they were shutting down stuff in L.A. too, uh, in Connecticut. They just announced these quarantines. If you're coming back from a state that has a lot of COVID cases, you're supposed to quarantine yourself for a couple of weeks. And I'm like, you know, why go out now when all this is going on? I mean, I'm not that concerned personally about getting COVID. I, mean, I don't want to get it. Uh, but, you know, I'm 57. I'm not a spring chicken. My 79-year-old mother lives with me. Uh, and, you know, certainly I wouldn't want uh, her to get COVID. So I told Joe, yeah, why don't we just postpone it? Uh, let's wait a few weeks, see how it plays out, and then just pick a time, any time that's convenient for you. I'll just make a special trip. I'll come out to L.A., and I'll do the podcast. And, of course, I wanted to go to L.A. when everything isn't shut down because I can spend a few days there. I used to live there. I have friends there. So, you know, I you know can make a little bit of a trip out of it. But Joe just really wanted to have it. He didn't want to postpone it. He just thought it was an important topic. He said, look, let's just do it remotely, uh, no problem. And so that's what I ended up agreeing to do. And, you know, I didn't really appreciate the problem that we were going to have with the format because I guess, you know, I've done Skype before, but I've been doing a lot of stuff on Zoom recently. In fact, I did a Zoom interview earlier today and it was great. Uh, and the difference between Skype and Zoom is when you're doing Zoom, if two people are talking at the same time, both people hear the other person talking. So you know that you're talking over each other and then one person can shut up and let the other person talk. Well, that's not how it was working on uh, Skype. So whenever I started to talk, my earpiece cut off. Joe's sound went out. So I couldn't hear a word Joe was saying, despite the fact that he was talking at the same time I was. Now, the way I had my studio set up, I had a, a monitor over to my left where I could actually see Joe Rogan. And it was kind of far away. And, and, and you know, I, you know, I'm a little nearsighted. I didn't have my glasses on, so it's a little blurry, but I could still see it. But it was in the on the left. Straight ahead, I have my studio camera because I have a studio in my house in, in Connecticut where I do TV hits. I have a satellite hookup. And so I have a camera with a monitor. They call it a confidence monitor where you just see yourself. And so when I look straight ahead at the camera, I only see myself. I don't see Joe Rogan at all. He's not even in my in my line of vision, right? Even in my peripheral vision, I, I, I couldn't see him. So what happens is I'm listening to Joe, and when I think he's done talking, because all of a sudden I hear a pause, maybe he's just taking his breath, but he wants to finish his thought, I was hearing a pause, and then I would jump in because I would hear something that he said, and I'd immediately want to react to it or comment on it, and I would start doing it without knowing that he was going to continue talking. And so it looked like I'm deliberately uh, speaking over him. I'm not. And there's actually even a delay, too. And that made it worse. Now, Joe mentioned something about it early on that we were talking over each other. And I didn't really get the, the, the mechanics of how that was working so much. But then he never mentioned it again. And so I just had no idea that this was going on. you know, And I couldn't see any frustrating looks on, on Joe's face because I couldn't see his face when we were talking. So I didn't get eye contact, body language. So I'm just talking away and I just assume Joe is, you know, is, is listening. And of course, you know, part of it is my fault. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in my mindset, you know, I'm in my studio and normally when you get these interviews, you know, you're on with Fox Business or whatever and I, I get five minutes and I'm sharing the mic with three other people, I'm very quick to jump in as soon as I hear an opening. 
And obviously, I didn't have to do that. I had three hours, although those three hours went by so fast. I was actually surprised when he was like, hey, we've almost been doing three hours. Um, but I obviously didn't have to do that uh, in this setting. But I guess, you know, subconsciously, I mean, I'm just trained to like, oh, I hear a pause and, and let me just go for it. And, and so it came across as me being really rude. But believe me, if I would have loved to have heard more of what Joe had to say. And again, I, I should have tried to involve him more in what I was saying uh, so that we had more of a conversation dynamic going on. So it was more of a, you know, a, a conversation and an interview, which I tend to dominate and people who know me, I mean, that's kind of, I'm very enthusiastic and, you know, I know I'm trying to take advantage of this big platform and I'm trying to get all this information out there and, and trying to, you know, affect people and influence people, especially since, you know, there's so much bad information out there. And I know he's got a lot of liberals that listen to him. And so I'm really trying to connect with those people. And I, that's why I'm pissed off that I turned so many of them off potentially right off the bat, because they're already predisposed not to like me, right? Because I'm a conservative and because I'm successful or wealthy. And so I just, you know, confirm their, their suspicions or their prejudices against me by appearing rude and not to care uh, about what what Joe had to say. You know, as a matter of fact, we even got off to a bad start or I got off to a bad start in the podcast because Joe asked me about Puerto Rico. And one of the first things he asked me was, what's the COVID situation down there in Puerto Rico? And for some reason, I didn't hear COVID. So all I heard was, what's the situation down there in Puerto Rico? Which is why I said, well, it's summer. It's it's kind of warm because I, you know, I didn't really know he asked me the situation, and so I just talked about the weather uh, because that's the only situation that uh, I could think of. I I didn't hear COVID. Had I heard it, I would have given a different answer. Uh, and you know, he I, I guess you know really couldn't talk when I was talking, so he couldn't really correct me. But. Right off the bat, people were thinking that, like, I didn't care what Joe Rogan had to say. I didn't want to answer his question. I just wanted to talk about the weather in Puerto Rico, and I never got to the COVID situation. Well, I didn't know that he asked about it because for whatever reason, I didn't hear it. So I just answered the question that I thought he asked. But in any event, that is what happened. Uh, and, you know, it won't happen again because, A, I know that. I, I now I know about this and, and what I need to do and in the future, if I'm with anybody on Skype and if anybody else is in that situation, what I have to do is when I think it's my turn to talk, I just have to wait a couple of seconds to make sure that the other person has finished their thought or their question before I comment on it or answer it. Although I think if Joe does it again, I think I mean, I think he's going to use Zoom. I pointed out the benefits of Zoom over over Skype. But this is why he likes to do them in person. And again, if you're a new listener to my podcast and you think that's how I am, I have there's three of these other Joe Rogan experiences that I did in studio in L.A. And you'll see it's much different. There really is no interrupting. I mean, yes, I tend to dominate the conversation. I mean, that's just something I tend to do. Uh, so I probably talk more. Uh, than Joe, which is maybe not typical of uh, the experience, but nothing like today, uh, you know, nothing like, uh, you know, the way I was uh, speaking over him and, and, and interrupting. And so one thing that I thought about when I was watching uh, the, the experience uh, myself, and of course, you know, that's when I found out about the interrupting and I, I was just as annoyed. I was more annoyed than anybody. It, you know, it made it hard for me uh, to see, to see us 
you know, talking over each other and then to see for the first time some of the frustration that, that, that Joe was having. I wish Joe would have just said something like, hey, Peter, shut up. I, you know, let me talk or, you know, let me know. Because after he talked about it the first time, he never mentioned it again. I was just going about my way thinking everything was going well. But I noticed that one point that Joe made, I kind of brushed over it uh, because I kind of didn't think that situation would exist and, and it probably wouldn't. But it really was a good opportunity to explain how capitalism works and I didn't really take the opportunity, so I'm going to take the opportunity now. And so Joe came up with an idea about a fictitious town uh, that only had one employer. And a lot of relatively poor people lived in the town to the point where they were so poor that they couldn't move, right? They were stuck in this town with just one employer. And because this one employer kind of was a monopolist because he was the only employer, he, did, he wasn't in competition with other employers, so he could pay really low wages, which these poor guys that were trapped in this town had no, no choice but to accept, right? That was the situation. Now, of course, I was like, well, that, that situation is impossible, so why even you know, worry about it, which is true. It's not possible. But let's say it happened. I'm going to explain now why it's not going to stay that way. So even if there were such a town it wouldn't exist for long. And let's first of all assume that in that town there is no minimum wage law, which of course I don't like the minimum wage law, but if there was a minimum wage law, then at least you know you would say, well, they, they have to pay the minimum wage if they want to hire somebody. They can't pay less because it wouldn't be legal. Uh, so they would have to pay minimum wage. And of course, let's assume there's no welfare uh, because obviously I have to pay people more than welfare, right? Because if welfare is available... I'm trying to pay people less to work than they would earn on welfare. I'm not going to have any takers, right? And, 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 you know, just to even digress a little bit, you know, because I did bring up the point that, uh, you know, a lot of people were choosing not to work because they could get these extended unemployment benefits, $600 now from the federal government on top of their regular unemployment. So a lot of people are earning $700, $800, $900 a week, or not earning, receiving, uh, not working. And I pointed out that that's a powerful incentive. And I did notice some comments. People were saying, oh, there's no way that people are, uh, you know, going to deliberately not work just for $600 a week. I'm like, what are you kidding? I mean, yes, maybe if you earn uh, $2,000 a week or $5,000 a week, yeah, you know, you'd rather have that job than that $600 check. But if you're working and getting $400 a week, Right. And you're getting six hundred dollars a week not to work. Um, yeah, that is a powerful incentive because you actually end up paying to work. Right. If you're getting six hundred dollars, actually, if you're getting six hundred, you're probably getting seven, eight hundred because you're getting your local benefit. And if you return to work, you're only going to earn four hundred dollars. You're actually paying three hundred dollars a week to get your job. Who the hell is going to pay to have a job? That, 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 that turns employment upside down. You get a job to make money, not to lose money. No one's going to pay their boss so that they could work. You want to get paid to work because working is not fun. I mean, most people that have jobs that only pay $400 a week, uh, these are not the most uh, stimulating, enjoyable jobs. It's kind of like, I can't wait till quitting time, right? You want to get home so you can do something fun uh, and you wish you didn't have to work, but you know you need the money, and so you're stuck working. Well, if you can get the money without working, 
it makes sense for people to do that, right? So in this town where there's one employer, if there was welfare, obviously he's got to pay considerably more than welfare or people are just going to opt for welfare. So let's assume there's a town, total free market town, Peter Schiff type of town. There's no minimum wage. There's no welfare. There's just a bunch of poor people and they're at the mercy of this greedy entrepreneur who is taking advantage of the fact that he is the only employer in this town and he is paying people starvation wages. I mean, not, I mean, he doesn't want them to starve. So he's paying them the bare minimum so that they can just show up and work every day. Right. And it's just a lousy situation. Now, of course, normally if there was an employer who was trying to pay really low wages, the workers would leave. They would get up and move. They would, you know, go on the internet and they would see where the better jobs are, where the higher wages are. And they would just go over there. Right. Uh, Because these higher wages would act as a magnet attracting a uh, labor, right? Because that's what labor wants, right? If you're an individual, you're selling your labor and you want to sell it to the highest bidder. And if the highest bidder is in another town, that's where you're going to go. And that's how the market works. Because if there is a town where the wages are very high, it's because there's not enough workers. There's a shortage of workers. And so that is a f- the free market's way of getting rid of that shortage. The high wages send a message to workers, come here, come here, you're needed over here because the wages are higher. And so people go over there and then gradually, if enough people come into the towns that are, that are paying high wages, now the supply of workers will go up and the wages will come down to a, a market level. But what Joe was saying is these guys are so poor, they can't leave. They don't even have enough money for a bus ticket, right? They're stuck in this one employer town. Okay, well, employers, businesses, they got money. They're not stuck. They, they're they mobile. So let's say I am a small businessman or any businessman, and I notice there's this one town where the wages are really low, right? I can hire people dirt cheap if I open up a, a, an office or a, some type of location in this town. That's what's going to happen. Because high wages are a magnet for workers. Low wages are a magnet for employers. They want to take advantage of this low cost, right? Because labor is a production cost that they may need. And if they can get labor cheap, then that's going to help their profits. In fact, that one employer that's exploiting all these workers because he's the only uh, job in town, Right. And, and, and in fact, he's not actually exploiting them because if he's the only job, then it's a good thing that they're there. The guy's there because if he wasn't there, there'd be no jobs. So he's the only chance they have. But, you know, he's paying what the market will bear. But because he's getting uh, his labor cheaper than other businesses, he's making higher profits. Right. He's got big profits because he's got these low labor costs. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at bet mgm 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. And then the same thing. Other companies see this guy making these huge profits, and they want in on the action. They want some profits, too. So businesses that are mobile, they come into town to hire all these cheap workers. Well, now all of a sudden, there's not one employer, there's two. And now there's a little competition. And so now the wages could go up a little bit, but maybe they're still low. And now a third employer comes in and a fourth. And all of a sudden, there's all these companies that were in search of higher profits. And because they wanted higher profits, they moved into a town that has low wages. See, they're, they're not coming there because they're benevolent, because they care about these workers and their low wages and they want to help them out. No, they want to help themselves. They want to take advantage of the situation, so they come into town. But in pursuing their own self-interest, now they're helping to bid up wages in this town. And what's going to happen is new businesses are going to keep coming to this town and bidding up labor until the differential goes away, until the people in this town are now earning the same amount of money as the people everywhere else. And now there is no uh, break. There are no excess profits being earned by employers. They're earning normal profits. And this is the beauty of the free market. This is how resources are allocated. This is how labor is allocated, right? Businesses, people pursue their own self-interest, And the irony of it is you have all these businesses that are coming to this town because the labor is so cheap. But now because all these businesses came to the town, the labor is no longer cheap, right? They actually uh, solved the problem, but they destroyed the reason they moved there in the first place. But of course, once they get there, you know, and they've they've set up shop and they've made some fixed costs, they're not going to leave when labor costs become normal because they're normal. They would have to pay those wages anywhere. But that's how, you know, shortages and and surpluses are cured in a free market, right? If there's a shortage of something, any product, uh, that sends a signal to businesses, producers, hey, we need more of this stuff. Make more of it because the price is really high, so make more. And so when you make more of it and you invest resources into producing more of this product where there's a high price, the fact that you increase the supply of that product automatically brings down the price. So now you're not going to make as much money as you thought because the fact that you're there and other companies are there producing more brings down the price. But that's the free market's way of delivering more of what the public wants. The way producers know that, that to, to make more is because the price is high and there's more profits. There's more incentive for them to produce more. Alternatively, if the price of something is really low... Uh, and people aren't able to generate a profit making it, they have to stop producing. Businesses have to find something else to make that the public actually wants and use resources uh, to, to, to satisfy those needs. And so as production declines, well, now supply goes down, and then price could eventually go up to where those businesses that remain in this smaller industry, because there's not as much demand, now they can exist profitably. But now we've rearranged resources more efficiently. None of this is orchestrated by anybody. It's not a central planner. So under this scenario that Joe Rogan described, where we had this town with one employer and a bunch of poor people, we've now solved the problem. 
right? Wages have now risen. Uh, they're now not in poverty. They, they make more money. They have a higher standard of living. The problem has been solved, but government didn't do a thing. There was no government program to solve it. It was solved all on its own. I mean, if government had gotten involved, the problem never would have been solved. In fact, the problem might have gotten worse. And in fact, the only way that that employer could have continued to underpay his workers uh, would have been to get government to protect his monopoly by passing laws uh, that made it harder or impossible for these other companies to move into town, either by erecting other barriers to entry, taxes, licenses, anything that would raise the cost of coming into the market to the point that other businesses would say, yeah, there's a lot of cheap workers there, but we can't come because it's going to cost us so much money because of these regulations that the regulatory burden will offset the benefit of low wages, right? But the only way that can happen is if you bring in government. If government is not involved, the free market solves all these problems all by itself without any government uh, programs or any central plan or trying to do it and without any of the businessmen actually having to care about the workers. They just pursue their own self-interest. And as Adam Smith described in Wealth of Nations, they're led by this invisible hand uh, uh, of the profit motive. But in helping themselves, they help all, all these poor guys uh, that were working for low wages because they couldn't leave and there was only one employer. Now, again, uh, those of you who are stuck at home and, uh, you know, are on the Internet, you're not at work, you're probably not thinking too much about your Internet privacy, but you really need to do that. Uh, if you're just firing up uh, your incognito mode on your browser and you assume that everything you're doing is private, uh, you're wrong. It's not. Everything you're doing, all the sites you visit are going to be known uh, by your internet service provider. There's a history of everything you're doing. You don't have any real privacy unless you're browsing the way I do with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN makes sure your ISP internet service provider can't see the sites you're visiting. Instead, your connection is rerouted through the ExpressVPN secure server. ExpressVPN serves as an IP address that's shared among thousands of users. That means everything you do is anonymized and can't be traced back to you. ExpressVPN also encrypts 100% of your data with best-in-class encryption, so your information is always protected so you can browse with confidence and privacy. So protect your online activity today with the VPN that I trust to secure my privacy. Visit my special link, expressvpn.com gold, and get an extra three months when you sign up for a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com gold, expressvpn.com gold to learn more. Now, one of the points or really questions that Joe Rogan asked a few times, actually, during the three-hour podcast was, Peter, what are your solutions? What do you do, right? If you were uh, the president or if you, were, if you had the president's ear, what would you advise President Trump to do about, about the problem, right? He's looking for uh, my solution. And in fact, I, you know, I saw a lot of comments, you know, people were saying, Peter, yes, you're talking about all the problems, but I don't hear any solutions. What are your solutions, right? Because a lot of people expect me to have a solution, like a politician has some government program or some policy that is supposedly going to solve the problem. But I actually don't have that type of solution to these problems. In fact, 
there really isn't even a solution in that sense. I mean, think about it this way. What if the government kept punching you in the arm? I mean, repeatedly punching you and punching you in the arm. And now you have a problem, right? Your arm is hurting. It's sore uh, and, and, and it's being continuously punched. And you're like, okay, Peter, what is the solution to the problem of my arm being sore and my arm hurting? And, you know, uh, I guess somebody might say, well, we need a program. Maybe we can, we can find a way of putting some cream on your arm, or maybe you can take some pills and your arm won't feel so bad, or maybe you can exercise a little more and build up your strength, right? But really ignoring the fact that the government is punching the guy in the arm. Right. So I'm not saying, hey, I've got a uh, I've got a government solution. I've got a remedy. I've got a program to make the guy's arm stop hurting. My idea is, hey, government, stop punching the guy in the arm. See, my solution is that the government just stop punching you. Now, my solution doesn't solve the problem of your arm hurting, because assuming the government stops punching you, your arm's still going to hurt. It's still sore because it's, it's been punched so many times. Right. But my point is, if the government stops punching you in the arm, your arm could heal, right? Eventually, the pain will go away. It's not going to go away right away, it may, I know, uh, but it will go away if you stop inflicting additional damage. The body will naturally heal itself, right? That's the same thing with the economy. See, I am pointing out the problems that the government is causing, right? Your arm is not hurting you because of something that's wrong with you, your arm is hurting because of the government punching it, right? You know, you're complaining, oh God, my arm is killing me. Why is my, and you're ignoring the fact that you're getting punched. So I'm just pointing out the punches and where they're coming from. And hey, let's just stop it, right? And let the economy heal. The economy, free market capitalism will solve these problems. We don't need a government program. Just like I, I just described how the problems in that small town got solved by capitalism and people pursuing their own self-interest, a lot of these problems, all of these economic problems that we have will be solved by a free market. And the freer the market, the quicker they'll be solved. Right? And so that's the point I'm trying to make. You can't expect me to say, oh, you know, I've got this magical solution. No, that's what politicians are selling. And, and it's a bunch of snake oil. And, you know, that doesn't mean I don't have sympathy because Joe Rogan kept talking about, you know, these businesses that are hurting, people that are hurting. This is horrible, right? People don't have income or, they, you know, for three or four months, you can't expect people to go four months without a paycheck. And you know something? Once upon a time, the average American could go four months without a paycheck. That really isn't that long. I mean, in a world where everybody lives paycheck to paycheck, middle-class Americans, it's hard to imagine a world where the average American has a year or two of, of, of living expenses just sitting in the bank. But that was the way it was for Americans before the government destroyed you know, their savings and, and created this perverse system uh, that got everybody all levered up with all this consumer debt and, and businesses all levered up. I mean, this is a creation of government. America didn't change. The government changed. Our tax laws changed. Uh, the Federal Reserve changed and created this, this problem. But I recognize that people are suffering. I just know why they're suffering. They're suffering because of bad monetary policy, bad fiscal policy. So the solution isn't more of that, right? 
Had we done what I wanted to do following the 2008 financial crisis, as heartless as that would have sounded back then to just let real estate prices fall, let the stock market fall, let banks fail, let the bad actors be punished and lose money, the decline, the, the, the contraction in 08, that great recession would have been greater. But we would have come out of it a much stronger economy and we would be in a much better position financially to weather this storm, this COVID storm. We would have had a rainy day fund. We wouldn't have borrowed all this money. We would have cleaned house on the economy. We would have got rid of a lot of the debt. So we would have come into this crisis in, in much better shape. But we've come into this crisis flat broke. The government has no money. The government has debt. And now you have all these people that have no money looking to the government that has no money. But they just assume the government has money because they have a printing press. Well, would it make any difference if every individual American had a printing press so they could print money? That doesn't do anything. You know, I jokingly, I, I put out a tweet one time uh, not too long ago, and I said, hey, I have a great stimulus plan. Just let everybody add six zeros to every dollar bill they own, and then they'll all be millionaires, right? That's just going to instantly solve the problem. It's not going to solve the problem because businesses are just going to add six zeros to the price of everything they're selling. Nobody's going to be better off if we just have more money. The only way we're going to be better off is if we have more stuff. And the only way we get more stuff is if we have more freedom and less government. But everything we're trying to do right now in the name of compassion is going to backfire and it's going to impose massive pain on everybody, especially the people who we're trying to help. Yes, they may get a short-term benefit today from this government help, but they're going to get a longer-term uh, punishment that is going to more than offset this short-term gain. The long-term pain is going to you know, be much bigger than the short-term gain, except people don't know that yet. I know it. That's why I want to do things that are in the long-term best interest of everybody, in particular, the more vulnerable, the poor and the middle class. It may seem heartless to people that don't get it, but once you understand it, then it's the most compassionate position that you can have. And I'm not, you know, just taking the position on a philosophical, uh, you know, libertarian, you know, uh, theft is wrong, taxation is theft, and it is. But I'm actually talking about it from a point of view is not only is it wrong morally, but it does damage economically. All of this well-intentioned, you know, good doing is doing damage. I mean, you, you know, you can feel good about it all you want and think that you've helped out the situation, but you've actually hurt the situation. You've actually made the problems worse. So I care about people. I just recognize that pretending the government has money because it has a printing press and just mailing it out, we can't do that. We have to let the economy restructure. We have to let businesses fail. And if it means that people who were waiters and bartenders are working in movie theaters, they may have to do something else. We have no idea when demand for those businesses will return and if it will ever return to the prior level. And I think we were in a bubble anyway. Americans were spending too much. That's why we were so broke. That's why we have no savings. So there was too much retail sales. Americans were shopping too much. We had too many stores. We needed to get rid of them. COVID might have just accelerated that process. But that means the people who used to work in those stores, who where those the, the labor is no longer needed in those areas, they need to go someplace else, trying to keep them entrenched by paying their bosses not to let them go and to stay in business. This is doing severe damage 
uh, to the structure of the U.S. economy, which is ultimately going to, to hurt everybody. You know, one comment in particular, and this was on my Instagram. Oh, and by the way, before I forget, you know, I just started Instagram uh, last week. And so now I have about 10,000 uh, followers. A lot of them came. I think I, I had about 3,500 to 4,000 before Joe Rogan. So all of a sudden I've got maybe 6,000 more uh, since coming on Joe Rogan. But I really want to encourage people to follow me on Instagram. And, you know, I wasn't on Instagram for a long, long time because in my mind, it was just a bunch of kids sharing photos of each other, right, on Instagram. And, you know, I didn't, you know, who wants to see a photograph of me? There are a lot of younger, better looking uh, people than me uh, who people want to look at. So I just didn't, you know, know why. And I know, you know, sometimes, you know, you post, you know, family pictures, but I mean, you know, I, I, who, no, no one needs to see, uh, you know, my family members. I mean, people who are following me, uh, you know, don't need to see pictures of my kids and, and, and stuff like that or, you know, what I'm doing on my vacation time. But what I really didn't know what was going on on Instagram, and I know this now because of my wife, who is really pressuring me to, uh, to do Instagram, is these little Insta stories, these short videos that are very easy to make and post. And to me, it's almost like a video Twitter because I've been tweeting a lot. Like I get a thought in my head and then I tweet it out, right? Uh, well, what I want to start doing is when I get one of these thoughts, I want to record it on a short video and Instagram it out on my on my channel. And I think that there'll be a lot of people, a lot of younger people who are already on Instagram that, you know, that where this might be a good way to get to them. And they're very visual. Uh, and, you know, I know I had a lot of success with Occupy Wall Street, which, of course, was a two hour video, which is not, you know, going to be Instagrammed out. But I think if I can have some concise thoughts where I just, you know, you can see me articulating the thought rather than just reading my tweet, you just, you know, see me and hear me, uh, you know, saying something that's on my mind. I think it could be a very good medium for me. I think it could be easy for my followers to share like little snippets of what I have to say that might whet somebody's appetite uh, for a larger portion, and then they might end up, you know, listening to my podcast or or something like that. So, you know, if you are following me on Twitter, I have over a quarter million Twitter followers. I've got, I forget how many, not quite 200,000 on Facebook. I've got, you know, almost 350,000 YouTube subscribers. So I've got a pretty good, I mean, nothing like Joe Rogan. I mean, I'm a peon next to him, although I guess a lot of us are peon uh, when you compare yourselves to uh, the best. Uh, but, you know, it's not insignificant. I've got a decent following. Uh, so why doesn't everybody follow me on Instagram too? Uh, and in fact, I actually applied. They still have a verification process. So maybe I'll actually get verified on Instagram. I haven't been able to do that on, uh, on Twitter. So everybody who's listening to this podcast, just go to Instagram and just go to Peter Schiff. I mean, it's my name. Uh, and so it's easy to find me. Like I said, I got about 10,000 followers now, hopefully more by the time you, you follow me. And even if you don't have an Instagram account, just go sign up. Just sign up specifically so you can follow me because I think you'll enjoy uh, the content that I'm going to put up. And I'm going to put up more as I have more followers, right? Right now, there's not that many people there. So it's not as you know valuable a use of my time. But the more people who are following me, the more valuable it will be for me to use that that medium. Uh, so just sign up, and then you know it's a good way to share. Just when I when I put something out, just share it around, and hopefully some of this stuff can go viral on Instagram. Uh, but anyway, 
the reason I, I brought up Instagram, right, is this comment. So this woman made a comment and it was a negative comment. And she said, you know, I'm just, all I care about is wealth. I'm just out there trying to protect wealth, right? I'm a bad guy because, you know, I want less government because I want to protect wealth, right? Because now all of a sudden wealth is a dirty word, right? Because people talk about all this wealth that people have as if that's why some people are poor because you have these rich people who are hogging everything and therefore everybody else is poor. And so wealth is like a bad thing. And so me trying to protect wealth is I'm just trying to protect the rich people who have wealth and I don't really care about other people. And what this woman didn't get, and look, I don't blame her. I'm not saying, you know, that she's a bad person. She's just misguided. She just doesn't understand that. I hope she listens to this podcast and gets this because wealth is not bad. Wealth is the most important thing in a free market economy. Without wealth, there's nothing. Accumulation of wealth is really uh, the secret sauce of what, what, what gets everything going in, in the free market. The more wealth you accumulate, right, the higher the standard of living of everybody. Because the way you grow wealth is not to hog it, not to be stingy with it. When you hog your wealth, it, 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 it doesn't grow. Right? And the only way that you can grow wealth is to uh, make it available to everybody, to the public. How do you make your wealth available to the public? Right? You invest in businesses. Right? You loan it out to get a return. Either you use the wealth yourself to expand your own business and to invest in capital equipment, or you loan it out to somebody else, or you put it in the bank. And the bank loans it out and they pay you some interest. I mean, nobody's just burying their wealth in, in under their mattress. And of course, when you're talking about wealth, you're talking about the capital stock. You're talking about businesses. You're talking about factories, capital equipment. The more wealth we have, the higher our living standard. We can't produce anything without wealth. If we didn't have any wealth, we'd all be poor. We'd all be, you know, hunting and gathering and just living a subsistent life. Remember in my... Uh, in my uh, book, How an Economy Grows and, and Why It Crashes, what was the first piece of wealth on that island? Because it's Abel, Baker, and Charlie. And if you don't have the book, you can go pick it up on, uh, on Amazon. And, uh, but you had these three guys uh, that fished by hand. Nobody had any wealth. Uh, all they did is fish by hand, and they could only catch one fish a day each. And then Abel had an idea. He came up with the concept of a net, he went without fishing for a day, so he sacrificed, and instead of fishing, he built the net, had no idea if it would work or not. It ended up working, and now he was able to catch two fish a day. That net was the first wealth of the island. That piece of capital equipment represented wealth. And what did Abel do with his wealth? He used it to help Baker and Charlie catch more fish by renting them his net so that they could catch more fish too. Had he kept the wealth to himself, he would have had that one net, but he never would have accumulated all the extra fish, which now meant he didn't have to fish at all. And now he could start doing all sorts of other things. So wealth is key. Wealth is important. Of course, I want to protect wealth because I want to protect prosperity. I want to protect economic growth, rising living standards. Yes, of course, I don't believe in theft. So I think private property should be protected. But wealth is not evil. And when one person is wealthy, that doesn't mean that somebody else is poor. Other people's wealth 
improves you. You're not hurt, right? You're not made poorer because somebody else gets rich. They're getting rich by enriching everybody. That's how they got rich. And if they want to get richer, they're going to enable you to accumulate more, right? They're going to use their wealth to produce products that make your life better, right? Because they invest in the factories that produce them, or they set up the businesses that can provide you with services that improve your life. In the process of providing goods and services, they're going to create employment opportunities that are going to allow other people's lives to improve. And of course, they're going to use their wealth for charitable purposes, right? And and so there's nothing but good is going to flow from this wealth. And so anything that destroys wealth destroys prosperity and destroys opportunity. So it's not because I'm just a greedy, selfish person that only cares about rich people that I want to preserve wealth. It's because I understand the benefits that wealth has uh, for poorer people or middle-class people. And of course, a lot of people think, hey, you know, wouldn't we be better off if we just took all that wealth from rich people and just divvied it up and gave all the poor people a little money? No, yes, you know, for, the, for a week or a month, Yes, that might they, they would be better because they'd take that money and they'd go buy something and they, you know they, they, they would experience some temporary uh, enjoyment because they can buy some more stuff. But what happens when the money runs out, right? The stuff is used up. That's it. But now the wealth is gone. So when you, when you redistribute wealth, all you're doing is trading long-term gain and prosperity for some temporary fun as you squander the wealth that somebody accumulated. And of course, once you set the precedent of confiscating wealth and divvying it up, you destroy the incentives for other people to create wealth. And it's the creation of additional wealth that really lifts uh, all the economic boats. So I want everybody to have a better life, but to some people that don't get it, it sounds like you're selfish. That's why I want to educate people to understand that it's the do-gooders, it's the altruists, it's the socialists, the guys that pretend they care that couldn't give a damn, right? It's libertarians, free market people, right? They actually care. But the bottom line about capitalism is it doesn't even matter. You can be a greedy son of a bitch and you're still going to improve people's lives, even if you don't even want to do that, even if all you want to do is get rich yourself. You can't do that without helping other people. Yeah, sure, there are the outliers, the criminals. Yes, there are some people that want to steal and they should be in jail. Uh, Theft, fraud, all that stuff is illegal. But the vast majority of greedy people who couldn't give a damn are still law-abiding. They don't want to risk going to jail, so they earn their money. They don't steal it and they can't earn it without enriching the lives of everybody else that they're doing business with, whether it's their customers or their employees. I want to finish up, though, by commenting on another uh, message I got on Instagram from a guy who was saying, oh, Peter, you know, you got all these facts wrong. Like right off the bat, you, you got your facts wrong. And so I wanted to address this because I didn't get my facts wrong. I think this guy who's criticizing me just doesn't understand uh, the facts that I was really trying to uh, present. So first of all, he said, hey, Peter, the economy was good before COVID. It wasn't bad, like you said. In the fourth quarter of 2019, all the GDP projections were strong and everything was good. Well, that's partially my fault because I misspoke. I did not mean the fourth quarter of 2019. I actually meant the fourth quarter of 2018. I just misspoke, which happens from time to time. I just got the year wrong. But if you actually listen to what I said, 
I, I talked about what happened. I said that's when the Fed uh, had to stop hiking rates, and that's what's laid the foundation for a return to quantitative easing. Right, that that didn't happen in Q4 of 2019. That happened in Q4 of 2018. That's when the wheels came off the bus. That's when uh, the Fed's rate hikes uh, finally took the toll, and the air started coming out of the bubble. The stock market was crashing. The economy was tanking. We were headed for recession in Q4 of 2018, and that's when the Fed did exactly what I had been forecasting they would do. In fact, when I was on Joe Rogan a couple years ago, I said then. The Fed was going to go back to zero. The Fed was going to do QE4. And now it happened. I didn't know that COVID might be the catalyst, but I knew it would be something. If it wasn't COVID, something would have done it. In fact, the Fed went back to QE in early 2019 when the repo market blew up because rates had already moved too high. But they stopped hiking rates in Q4 of 2018. They rescued uh, the economy uh, from the deflating bubble. They rescued the stock market. They, they ended quantitative tightening, went back to quantitative easing, and they started cutting rates. I mean, they cut rates three times in 2019 before, you know, COVID even came around in February, March of 2020. So I was right that the economy started falling apart uh, prior to COVID. Yes, they had managed to goose it back up a bit by the time COVID hit, but that was only because of all the artificial stimulus. But again, it was a phony economy. My point was Trump was saying the economy was great. It wasn't. It was a bubble. The Fed reflated this deflating bubble. Uh, we were extremely vulnerable to COVID-19 because we were living beyond our means. It was all a bubble. People were living paycheck to paycheck. Corporations were levered to the hilt. The government was already massively in debt. And then we have a problem, right? Had the government paid down debt after 2008, had individuals paid down debt, had we let a lot of this debt get liquidated, We'd have a lot more savings in society and we could weather the storm. And even if the government wanted to give aid uh, to people, it would have the money. It would have the resources. It doesn't have that. All it has is a printing press. I mean, the government can't even borrow money in the private sector without driving interest rates up. The reason the Fed has to monetize all this debt is because if the Fed didn't do it and the U.S. government had to borrow from private borrowers, interest rates would go up. But if interest rates go up, everything collapses because everybody's got so much debt, they can't afford higher interest rates. you got to keep rates at zero. So the only way to keep rates artificially low is for the Fed to monetize the debt. But that's just doing additional damage. That's just creating more inflation, right? That's fueling the bubble and setting us up for a even bigger fall. So I didn't get the fact wrong, even though I misspoke. Uh, my characterization of the U.S. economy pre-COVID was dead on. Right? It's the people who think we had a great economy are, are the ones that got it wrong. But the other point that he took issue with was when I was talking about inflation, saying that we have this big inflation tax, that the government is printing all this money, and so prices are going to go up, and those higher prices basically amount to a tax. The government is taking our purchasing power. And he said, no, we've got the lowest inflation ever. Look at the CPI. There's no inflation, so you're wrong. Well, inflation is not the CPI. Inflation is the government inflating the money supply, expanding the money supply. That's where the word inflation comes from, right? You're literally inflating, right? You're, you're, you inflate a balloon. What happens when you inflate a balloon? It expands, right? Prices don't expand. Prices don't inflate. They go up. They go down. But when you, ex when you inflate a balloon, it, it expands. When you deflate a balloon, it contracts. So inflation literally means the money supply expanding. 
Deflation means the money supply contraction, contracting. And in fact, if you get an old dictionary, you get an old Webster dictionary, that's exactly how the terms are defined. Eventually, they changed it to uh, inflation started to be defined as an expansion of the money supply that results in higher prices. Originally, it was just an expansion of the money supply. That was the definition of inflation. Then it was changed to an expansion of the money supply that results in higher prices. Now, it's just an expansion of the money supply. So they basically redefined inflation to mean one of the consequences of inflation. And the government uh, and economists you know, had a big part in changing the definition of inflation so they can shift the blame. Because if you know inflation is an expansion of the money supply, well, we all know who's to blame. The government controls the money supply, the Federal Reserve. But if the government is successful in convincing people that inflation is rising prices, well, then they can blame it on greedy businessmen. They can blame it on the Arabs or China or you know labor unions, depending on your perspective. But they can blame everybody but themselves. So that's what was the impetus to, to confuse the public so that they, they don't understand inflation. But the reason the CPI is still so low, one of the reasons is it's rigged. Not that they're, they're, they're fudging it. It's just that they reverse engineered it. You know, back in the 1980s, they had this thing called the Boskin Commission or early 90s uh, because people decided that the CPI had been overstating inflation. I don't think it was, uh, but that's what they decided and they were going to fix it. Yeah, they fixed it by, you know, with a fix. And the fix was in, in that after they rejiggered the, the computation, now all of a sudden, Prices were rising lower, which they thought was more accurate. But again, I've, I've looked at this. You know, one of the YouTube videos I did a few years ago that's up on my YouTube channel uh, where I did it, I forget, three years ago, four years ago. I did it actually it was in 2013, so it's longer. But I, I compared uh, the prices of magazines uh, over a 10-year period from 2003 until 2013. And... Uh, during that 10-year period, according to the CPI, the official CPI, the price of newspapers and magazines was up by 30%. That was what the government said, that newspapers and magazines were 30% more expensive in 2013 than they were in 2003. Well, I decided to check because it's really easy because you could just go online and you can see pictures of the covers of newspapers and magazines from 2003. And they put the price right there on the cover. So what I did is I got, I think, the top 10 or 20, I don't remember the exact number, magazines and newspapers widely circulated in the United States. And I compared the prices in 2003 to 2013. And the real price increase over those 10 years was not 30%, but about 130%. So the official CPI captured about, what, 25% of the actual price increase. Now, how is it possible that newspapers and magazines could go up by 130% yet the CPI says they went up by 30%? Well, I don't know. You got to obviously they had some kind of adjustments, hedonics, quality adjustments, all kinds of subjective factors that went in there that somehow, you know, said that the quality improved to such an extent or there was substitution and and the government magically made three quarters of the price increases go away. So that's your CPI. Your CPI is not honest, right? Like expecting an honest CPI from the government is like expecting, you know, honest crime statistics from the mafia, 
If you hired the mafia and you said, hey, you know, see if there's if there's crime here and if, see if we need more cops. Would you expect them to come back and say, oh, yeah, we got a lot of crime. We need more cops. No, no, no. They're going to be saying, nope, no crime at all. Last thing we need is more cops. In fact, we got too many cops, right? You, you could use them someplace else, right? I mean, they're not going to be honest, right? Talk about the fox guarding the hen house. So getting CPI numbers from the government, they have a vested interest in pretending it's lower uh, so they can pretend the economy is growing. Remember, if they underestimate inflation, they overestimate growth because the GDP numbers are uh, deflated by the deflator. And so if they can pretend there's less inflation, they can pretend there's more economic growth than there actually is. And then, you know, they don't have to give people on Social Security as bigger raise uh, because, you know, it's a way of cutting Social Security without the recipients realizing they've got a cut as you pretend that cons- the consumer, the cost of living is rising more slowly. So there's all sorts of reasons that the government wants to lie to the public. The Federal Reserve wants to lie about inflation because it, it wants to keep pretending it's too low so it can keep expanding the money supply, so it can keep monetizing debt and keep interest rates artificially low. They're saying the reason they're doing that is that there's not enough inflation. Well, if the public realized there was more than enough inflation, they could no longer operate under that false pretense. So they'd have to come up with some other excuse why they're doing this. Uh, But pretending there's no inflation is the excuse. And that is one of the things I got into on the Rogan podcast about falling prices and why it's a lie uh, that, you know, falling prices are bad and that rising prices are good. But I don't want to get into that here because I'm, you know, I'm already running long on this podcast. But the point I'm, I'm trying to address is this individual is wrong in saying that there's no inflation because by definition, QE4 is inflation. Now, he is correct in that according to the official measures of inflation, we haven't really seen a surge in consumer prices. But the operative word is Yet. We haven't seen it yet, but we are about to. You know, when the Fed did QE1, 2, and 3, the prices that were most affected by inflation were asset prices. The stock market went up, the real estate market. And that was the design of it. I mean, the Fed specifically said, we're doing this to make asset prices go up because they believed in the wealth effect. They thought if they could just goose the stock market and make the real estate market go up, that people would feel wealthier and they'd spend more money, which was the problem. They spent money they didn't have. They weren't wealthier. Just because stock prices go up or the price of your house goes up, you're not any wealthier. It's the same house. In fact, the house might be deteriorating. And if the if the price of a stock goes up, but the earnings of the company don't go up and it's just got a higher multiple, you're not richer. That's all on paper. It can evaporate overnight. It's a fantasy to think you're wealthier because there's a higher price on an asset that hasn't improved in value. If a company hasn't increased its plant and equipment, if it's not earning more money, it's no more valuable. I don't care what the price says, right? And in fact, a lot of these companies, objectively, they're not even earning enough money to replace their depreciating equipment. So the companies are actually becoming less valuable as their share price is going up. That is an accident waiting to happen. That is a bubble. Right? But the Fed didn't care about that. They just know that in the short run, if they can create some phony wealth, they can create some phony economic growth. And that was the problem. We had a phony economy when COVID hit. And, and we had a real problem with a phony economy and the whole thing fell apart. But what is going to happen is that soon the bottom is going to drop out of the dollar because of all the money that we're printing. And all this inflation is not going to go into asset prices, which you know, people feel good. They don't mind it if inflation 
makes them richer on paper, but they don't like it when it makes them poorer in reality. When it's not the stock market where they see the effects of inflation, but the supermarket, when it's food prices that are skyrocketing, that's what's going to happen. And it's going to happen quick. I agree it hasn't happened yet. Right. And I explained that the reason that hasn't happened yet is because the dollar is the reserve currency and we're exporting dollars and foreigners are holding them and they're using them to buy financial assets. They're buying bonds, they're buying stocks. And, and so uh, the, the, the dollar's purchasing power is being supported and all the goods that we're not producing are coming in from China and other parts of the world. So we're still getting goods to consume because our trading partners are willing to trade them for dollars because they want to invest those dollars in our financial assets. Well, the dollar is going to crash and nobody's going to want to hold dollars, which means that if we want to import, we're going to have to export. And, you know, somebody made a comment, too, that what do you mean they're going to stop accepting dollars? I don't mean that they won't accept them. They won't hold them. So they're not going to invest the dollars that they earn. They're going to turn around and sell them. And if we haven't earned uh, euros or yen or RMB because we've exported to them, if we can't offset those transactions in the foreign exchange market, the dollar is going to collapse. Right now, those dollars aren't being sold. They're being hoarded. And as long as they're being hoarded in financial assets, the, the exchange rate of the dollar isn't going down. And so the dollar's purchasing power is holding up. But once our trading partners don't want to hold those dollars, they want to get rid of them, then they sell them uh, and there's no one to take the other side of the trade. So the dollar is going to plunge and that's when you're going to get hit by the inflation tax. It's going to hit you over the head like a club. It's going to clobber you overnight and all of a sudden your cost of living is going to skyrocket and that's when you're going to see and feel the effects of the inflation tax. So I am looking forward to this tax being exacted. He is oblivious. He's just blindly looking in the rearview mirror of a, of a highly rigged CPI and has no idea what's up ahead. I am looking ahead and planning ahead and trying to help other people plan ahead as well. And again, the way that you avoid the inflation tax is by getting out of the dollar. It's a tax on dollars and dollar-denominated assets, wherever they are, whether they're in insurance policies, cash value, annuities, pensions, uh, other fixed payments that you expect to have, your bonds, of course, state, uh, you know, muni bonds, corporate bonds, uh, treasuries, you name it. If it's got a coupon and a principal payment in dollars, it's going to get taxed by inflation. Doesn't matter if it's in a retirement account, pension. Uh, and of course, if you've got a government pension, inflation is going to tax it. You're getting Social Security, inflation is going to tax it. Right? So the only way to avoid this is to not own dollars. So you got to own assets outside the U.S. that are not dollar denominated, that generate income that isn't in dollars. Um, you know, you got to own gold or real resources. And I know one person mentioned on Instagram, hey, you know, you keep talking about how inflation is going to wipe out people's savings. And you just mentioned that nobody has any savings. So what do we have to worry about? And that is true. A lot of people don't have savings, but they have wages they have salaries, right? They have, they, have, they have Social Security benefits, right? All that's going to get wiped out uh, by inflation too, right? All these government checks are not, are not going to buy anything. But there are some older people who, who are, live off their savings. They're not rich, but they may have a few hundred thousand saved or maybe a couple of million and they, they want to live out uh, the next 10 or 20 years of their lives. And maybe some of these savings are not in the form of cash, but they're in the form of pensions or annuities. Uh, inflation is going to wipe that out. That is a big problem. 
Yes, you know, if you're young and you don't have any savings, and that's one less problem. But believe me, uh, wiping out savings, that means that's wiping out wealth. That means that's compromising economic growth for all the reasons that I laid out. But this person also said, I'm telling people that they need to save, but I'm also saying inflation is going to wipe it out. So that's mutually exclusive. No, it's not, because I'm not telling people to save dollars. You would have to be a fool to save dollars. That is the problem. That's one of the reasons that nobody is saving dollars, because it's so dumb to do it because of the way the Fed has rigged the system. But since savings are the mainstream of economic growth, right, savings in the form of wealth or whatever, savings come out from underconsumption, and savings is what enables capital investment, which increases productivity, which leads to rising living standards, what which lifts people out of poverty. Remember, with Abel Baker and Charlie, his savings was the fact that he 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 didn't consume for a day. He didn't eat fish. He didn't go out. He that that's what enabled him to to build the net. And you know, once they started catching fish and they didn't eat all their fish, they saved some fish. Then they were able to eat fish in the future out of their savings. And now when they weren't fishing, they were able to do other things and build other things that never existed before because they were spending all day fishing or they would have starved. But once they had enough fish saved up because they were catching more fish than they can eat, they were able to sustain themselves on their savings and grow the economy. So it's unfortunate when you have a economic system that punishes savers then you, you know, you've basically slit your own throat. You've killed the goose that lays your golden eggs. But what I'm telling people to do now, don't save dollars, right? Save real money. Buy some silver and save that. Get some gold. Your savings should be in the form of real money, gold and silver, which is something that the government can't tax right? because they can't print gold and silver. You need a mine and it costs a lot of money to get it out of the ground. They can make all the gold, all the paper money they want. It costs nothing. They can put as many zeros as they want on a dollar bill, and they're going to put a lot of them, believe me. So you want to own something scarce that the government can't create, and that's gold and silver. And if you don't have any, you know, check out my company, Shift Gold. Uh, check out Gold Money. If you have, you know, you can get some money there, gold there. But if you want physical delivery, uh, talk to Shift Gold. Uh, that's how you save. It's unfortunate that we have to save in gold because when you save in gold, you're not making a loan. You're not helping the economy grow. It's unfortunate that I have to encourage people to save in gold, but it's the only way that you can preserve your savings. And what my hope is, and I did express this sentiment on the Joe Rogan, is my goal is to preserve as much wealth as I can for as many Americans as I can. So after the country collapses, if we eventually do the right thing, We have wealth that hasn't been destroyed that we can repatriate to help rebuild this economy. Anyway, thanks for listening. And I hope the new people, again, who just started listening because of Joe Rogan, hopefully you continue to listen and you tell your friends and they listen too.